The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Now, if you have your Bible, please uh, do take it and open to Philippians chapter 3. And actually, I, I don't know, can the four of you, if you don't, can you, do you just come over here? Just make it easy on me. I mean, I'm just going to be that person today. And this whole wing is empty. I just need to balance out the, the power here. I'm not quite sure where, our, where the rest of our church is. I, I trust they're doing well. Um, I know where some of them are. Um, but, yeah. The transition of seasons seem to have taken us. I mean, I remember along. Philippians chapter 3. And um, let's begin with prayer. Father, we pray now, God, for your help in our study. We're here, God, to learn to be taught, not by some learned or gifted man, but by your Spirit. So I do pray that the words that I I speak would be firmly rooted and planted in your Word, that the Spirit, your Spirit, would use this Word to be a light to others, could help us in obedience and in grace. Uh, We depend upon you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by reading in verse 1 of chapter 3, and we'll read to verse 11. Philippians chapter 3. Finally then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. One of the issues that I often come across at times in my own life, but often as I'm talking with Christians, is an awareness that Christianity can be very difficult. The commands of the New Testament, though by the Spirit, are achievable. Navigating through a world of hostility and evil and sin often make them very difficult. We're waging war against our own flesh. The spirit within us wages against the war in our body. We see temptations from within and without. And what makes matters worse is that Christians often will have a shallow root system of faith. Maybe because they're new Christians. They're new to the way of the Bible. They've not read fully all the promises and the precepts of God. They haven't come to church long enough or been discipled well enough. And so they haven't fully formed their faith deeply in the rich soil of God's truth and His Word and His promises. They haven't come to make relationships where people have taken a commitment, an oath, a covenant to care for and be with them through their trials. Or maybe they've gone to church for a long time and have filled themselves up with knowledge about the Bible, but have never truly grown deeper in their relationship with God. That may be you. Sometimes they've had a great relationship with the Lord at one point in their life, but through temptation or trial or struggle, they've wandered away from the faith for some time, and they're not sure how they'll ever find their way back. They've seemed like it's too far away. The root system of their faith sometimes is too shallow, and, and when there is not a depth to faith, the pressures and the circumstances of life begin to crush you in around them. And what's the response? It's to pull away. It's to run. It's to reject. To hide. It may be to fight back. It may be to turn away from. But when Christians who have a shallow root system of faith find trials and difficult circumstances, when they realize that they have not the knowledge or the depth or the intimacy with Christ to withstand their current trial, they have two choices. First, they can throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ and beg that He would keep them, though their soul and their heart are prone to wander. Or, like so many that we may have seen before us, they've pulled and run away, unable to withstand the torment of sin and despair Temptation and the tide of the world. I want to posit that one of the reasons for the shallow root system is because we lack a knowledge of the work of Christ, who He is and what He's done, and we have not fully come to appreciate our union with Christ as Christians. You could see from this morning's title, Gospel Union for Gospel Living, that the point that I'm going to make is that as a Christian, if you desire to live in light of the gospel, you must come to fully embrace, understand, and identify with Christ as your own. You must recognize that you, as a Christian, have been united to Christ in such a way that your very living is tied to Him inseparably. That He is for you all that you could ever want or need. And so when the circumstances of your life come in around you and the pressures of the world 
come in around you and the trials of sin and temptations of sin try to lead you away from God, you will turn not to your own strength or willpower, not even to your own ingenuity or theological acumen, but to your union with Christ. It is your relationship with Christ, one with Him, that will keep you from falling and stumbling. And this is what we see in Paul. In Philippians chapter 2, we see this beautiful picture of what Christ has done. You can turn there and just recount it with me. It says that, that Christ himself was in the form of God. Beautiful, majesty, splendor, glory, brightness, radiance, And yet he did not count this equality with God, a thing he very much was, as a thing to be grasped or clung to. But he set aside and he became a servant. He who was in the form of God emptied himself, it says, and took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. It's a great exaltation Reduced to the humiliation, a king dresses himself and becomes a peasant. And then it says, being found in human form, he humbled himself even further, as if the condescension from heavenly throne to earthly creature wasn't enough. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and even death on a cross. But from humiliation back to exaltation, we read then in verse 9, that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and the very, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is celebrating what Christ has done. And in chapter 3, he personalizes the work of Christ to his own ministry. And he lays out a model and an example of what it looks like to live the Christian life on the basis of gospel unity or union with Christ so that those who are struggling in their faith, who are facing with mounting pressure the world outside of them or are led by temptation and sin from within themselves to walk away from God or be disobedient to God, he lays out before them the very basis of his own obedience and ministry that we might follow in his footsteps. We see in chapter 3 is this holy ambition, he says, that all he wants to know is that Christ who was humble to the point of death. He says that I count everything as a loss that I may know Christ. Everything I count as lost because of, he says, the surpassing worth, the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is rubbish, it's trash, it deserves to be in the garbage because I have found what I truly treasure. His holy ambition is to be fully, completely, and personally known by God and to fully, personally, and experientially know Christ. He desires to be so intimately united to Christ in both Christ's humiliation 
his death, his sufferings, and in his exaltation, his resurrection, that he would so seek to be in union with Christ for the sake of his own ministry. All that Paul did was in pursuit, he says, of this prize. Look a little further down in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I don't consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's the call of the Christian life is to press on towards the goal of the call of the upward prize of Jesus. Paul's holy ambition was to be so intimately united to Christ in his humiliation and exaltation, his suffering and in his resurrection, that he would be counted as Christ, and Christ would be his. All that Paul did would be in pursuit of this prize, and he considered all that he had ever accomplished, everything that he had ever gained in his life as worthless, he says, worthless compared to what he has found in Christ. And thus being united to Christ in this life, means that all the things we gain in comparison are trivial. In His suffering, in His glory, we are united to Christ. And for Paul, this becomes the paradigm for his ministry. Everything he does is about union with Christ. We could see from the screen this is what this looks like, how this lays out for, for Paul. His preaching flows from a deep and abiding intimacy with Christ, which is the blossoming flower of gospel union. Union with Christ is the vehicle for gospel living. Union with Christ is the means by which we come to possess the knowledge of God. That knowledge of God which is unsurpassed in its worth unsurpassed in its value, far greater than any worldly achievement or human genius. Now, I've got slides here. I have a preaching aid, and I don't want you to think that I'm doing this frequently. But as I was studying, there was a helpful visualization for me uh, that I wrote down, and I thought it might be helpful to you. So, uh, Chris, you may go forward. What I want to show you, and we'll see this as we walk through the text together, is how union with Christ fuels our gospel living. And this is the track that Paul lays out. We see that on the basis of his union with Christ, he receives the knowledge of God, intimacy with God, to be found in Christ and to know him and the power of his resurrection and his sufferings. And this is what fuels his ministry. We can see that very clearly in the text. That all that he does and all that he pursues is, is Christ. On the basis of his union, he desires to know him so intimately that everything he does flows from that truth and that fact. Paul reveals to us that his union with Christ is the vehicle for his gospel ministry and that our union with Christ is the vehicle for our gospel ministries, our gospel living the means by which we come to possess the knowledge of God, to know Him and to be known by Him. It's the means by which we come to see the worth and the value and the beauty of all that He has to offer us in much greater comparison than anything the world may offer ourselves. 
And we're tempted often to think about the world's gift and offering as something that rivals the Bible's or the Lord's. But what Paul says, there is nothing in this world that could ever tempt him to take his eyes off of what he knows to be the most valuable treasure in his life. Jesus. And that's the hope for you, friends. Now, many of you may know or maybe yourself have tried to have something like this but have left something out. Now, if, of course, you're not united to Christ by faith and you just have knowledge of God, you've come to some Bible classes or church, you've grown up there, you know the right things to say, you've read some passages, and therefore you try to live ministry or try to live according to how the Bible teaches you, you find very quickly that that's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? To try to obey God, to try to live a godly life, absent union with Christ. But let's say you, you are, by God's grace, converted and you have a union with Christ. And we'll explain a little more what that talks about in a minute. But you have no knowledge and no deep and abiding relationship with God. You do not know God personally with a fervor and a zeal the way Paul describes that Christians must pursue, and you simply try to live godly lives, gospel living. But then you find yourself very frustrated. You find yourself over and over again overcome by the temptation and sin and allure of the world because you have nothing in place to fully hold on to. Or if you're missing the ministry, the gospel living that flows from gospel union, and you have knowledge, but you have not taken that knowledge and applied it to your life, then you are not living fully in light of what the, God, what the Bible has called us to live at. So we see very clearly what Paul lays out for us here is that we are to have union with Christ on the basis of which our knowledge of who He is, our intimacy and relationship with Him is rooted and grounded deeply so that we can then fulfill the ministries and the missions God has given to each one of us. We need, at the end of the day, this union with Christ. So we'll take each one of these columns on its own. I want to examine the first. The column here of union is rooted in our faith, and our faith particularly in Christ. Union with Christ is the cornerstone of the Christian life. What do I mean by union with Christ? I mean that when we believe by faith that Christ is the Son of God, that according to the Scriptures, He died for our sins and was risen again on the third day, and we call upon the name of the Lord for the salvation of our souls, we are united to Christ savingly and brought into relationship with Him in which His work is ours, which His righteousness is ours. This union is the cornerstone of the Christian life. It is everything about the Christian life. All the blessings and all the graces of salvation are contained within it and flow out from it. Well, Paul says later in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's Ephesians 1.3. So when we talk about union, we're talking about being found in Christ. This is what he says there, that he would be found in him. This isn't in simply around. It's not in as in under. 
or above or with. This is in. Let me ask you, on a trip from one country to another, where would you rather be? On the plane, with the plane, under the plane, or in the plane? You'd be in the plane. You're not safe outside of the plane. You're not going anywhere under the plane. To be in Christ means to be safe and secure. And where Christ goes, you go. Who Christ is, you benefit. All the saving works, blessings, benefits, and graces are yours because you are in him. It means to be so united that you are, friends, the body of Christ. Is not your hand united to your arm, united to your body? So union with Christ we see is very clearly the cornerstone of the Christian life from which all the blessings of salvation are contained and flow from it. Paul understood that by gaining Christ, he says that he's, he, he throws everything away, and considers it as garbage, that he may gain Christ. He understands that by gaining Christ through his being in Christ is how Christians are joined to Christ. Particularly when you are united to Christ, you are joined to every aspect of the saving activity of Christ. All of his work, all of his effort, all of his atonement, all of his intercession, all of his keeping, all of his sending, all of his sustaining is yours. You are united and joined in every way at every point to the saving activity of Christ. There is no degree of separation between you who are in Christ and Christ himself. Every point in the Christian's experience of God's gracious and redemptive love rests on the central truth of union with Christ. Paul knew this. And he knew that without such union, there was no hope of salvation, justification. There is no blessing. There is no justification. There is no sanctification. However, this union does not come through our accomplishment, he says. It's not through the law that he accomplishes this. It's not from the boasting in the flesh. Well, Paul was more than happy to turn his back to all of his successes, to turn his back to all that he had gained, even turn his back on his own heritage, if it meant a greater view of the beauty of Christ in his work. Remember, he says, if anyone has reason to boast in the flesh, it's me. I, I, I'm the one who has the greatest privilege. I'm a Hebrew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. I kept the law. I was blameless before the law. All of this, all of this I forsake. To get a glimpse of the beauty and the value and the worth of Jesus. Friends, what is God maybe now revealing to you that needs to learn its place before the majesty of the Son of God? What former identity do you hold on to, the vestige of some reputation about your life that you still keep a glance on instead of the prize of the upward call of God? Paul says, all that I was, I'd rather throw away to be known and to be known by Christ. So rather than anything we can accomplish through the flesh, as Paul says, 
Paul is here emphatic that our union to Christ and to all of his saving benefits that that union provides for us, saving benefits like justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, all of our saving benefits is through faith in Christ, not through flesh. This is very clearly in verse 9, that we are to be found in him and our union with Christ not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So in other words, it is on the basis of faith that we are united to Christ, hence the arrows. So if Paul lays out the trajectory of gospel living, it must first begin on the basis of gospel union, you see. The basis of our union is our faith. And the object of our faith is Christ. Not our accomplishments, not our ingenuity, not our creativity, not our collected wisdom. It is Jesus. Because it is faith that saves us. And the righteousness from God depends on that faith. And therefore, it is Christ's righteousness alone. So it is on the basis of faith that we are united to Christ. And more than this... Our faith not only unites us to him, joins us to him, but through this faith, we have gained Christ as our very own. This is the radical thing about Christianity that is not true of any other world religions. By becoming an adherent to Christianity, we actually gain possession of the object of our worship. No Muslim would say that they have gained Allah. No Buddhist would say they have gained those who we worship. The most they hope to gain is some form of enlightenment or some form of pleasure from their God. But we have gained him ourselves. He is ours. We are united to Christ and we have gained him as our very own. So the reality of our spiritual condition before God, as those who are in Christ, the reality of our spiritual condition before God now is exactly that of the Son's. We are one with him on the basis of our faith, on the basis of our union. Just as a husband and a wife are one flesh on the basis of their union. This is, of course, why marriage exists, to teach us this very fact, that we are united to Christ more intimately and more familiarly than even a husband and a wife would be united to each other in marriage. Marriage and the one flesh union between a man and a wife serves to remind us and to show us just what it means to give us language to be united to Christ. We are the same. And so the reality of our spiritual condition before God now is exactly that of his sons. You stand before God, a justified sinner, exactly in the place of where Jesus would stand. That's a theological reality. Now, I don't want you to assume that you have superiority over Christ because you have the same and are one with him. That would be blasphemy. But the real offer of God's grace in the gospel is that you are counted, adopted as a son and may stand completely innocent and justified because of what Christ has done. You stand in the same spiritual condition before God as Christ does right now, if you are in Christ. You can already begin to see how these truths here form the very cornerstone of your faith, doesn't it? That without any of this, without union, without faith, without Christ itself, nothing else you will ever do could ever count as meaningful before the Lord. 
certainly couldn't save you. So this first pillar of the faith is of utmost importance to Paul's theology and to his own ministry. And we must get this so right, friends, that if we miss the idea, we miss the reality that our union with Christ is the very fount of all the blessings of our salvation, then we will not receive and walk in the truth and the knowledge of grace. We will not be effective in our ministries to the world. We will not be effective in our resisting of temptation against sin. But our union with Christ also produces knowledge. And this is the second pillar. Moving from union, faith, in Christ, we must consider what it means to have gained knowledge on the basis of the union. And what does Paul say that he has understood his knowledge to be consisting of? It is on Christ's resurrection and on his suffering. He says that he would be found in Christ, verse 10, that I may know him. Particularly, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So union with Christ becomes the cornerstone of all of life. And on the basis of that cornerstone, we build our knowledge, our relationship with God. We get to know him. And this knowledge produces a cruciform life. Cruciform is a word that means literally in the shape of the crucifix. But that I mean literally that our lives are lived in the shape of both the power of Christ and the humiliation of Christ as he has displayed on the cross. This is the example Paul leaves for those who would seek to be faithful to God in obedience to his word in the ministry, that it must be a crucified ministry filled and formed by the power of Christ's resurrection. Our union with Christ leads to knowledge which shapes us. So the Christian life is cruciform. And our gospel living is then grounded in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ through the Spirit. I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection, Paul says, because in knowing Christ and knowing, feeling, walking with, and having a direct line to the power of His resurrection, he knows that whatever God has intended for him to do, he will walk faithfully, even if it costs him his life. What is it worth to lose his soul, even if he gains the world? So this gospel living would be grounded in the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ through the Spirit. What is the power that raised Christ from the dead? It is the Spirit of God. So to know the power of the resurrection is to know the revitalizing power of the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So if you are united to Christ and Christ was risen from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and you, Christian, having been united to Him, also have the Spirit, then you, in knowing Christ, also come to know the power of His resurrection, experientially, not just theoretically, not just intellectually, but experientially, you have come to know the power of the resurrection of Christ. This truth, this reality of the power of the resurrection of Christ this is what started the church. This is what sent the church to the nations. This is what caused the church to plant herself in the hearts and the minds of men all over the world. 
It is the resurrection that empowered their believers to lay down their life, to shed their blood. The power we are called to intimately know is proven by our intention to live and to serve and yes, even die for the cause of Christ. But more than just the power of his resurrection, gospel living is also to be surrounded by the sufferings and the humiliation of Christ. As much as we are informed by the resurrection and the power of Christ being raised from the dead, we are also to be informed and surrounded by the sufferings and humiliations of Christ. His glorification is as important to us as his humiliation. He says that I would come to share in his sufferings. Or later he says in Colossians, which we've read before, that he would in his own body make up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not that Christ's substitute was any insufficient, but that they would continue in filling up the afflictions, demonstrate and prove that they would live for Christ just as he lived for them. Gospel living is surrounded by the sufferings and the humiliation of Christ. So Paul would say that he would go on to be beaten, stoned, whipped, left for dead, shipwrecked, maligned, persecuted. And all of this he gladly welcomes because he shares in the sufferings with Christ. He knows that gospel ministry may cost him, inevitably will cost him his life. But he's glad to pay the price even in his own death. Because he, verse 11, more than anything, by any means possible, may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so for Paul, he knows that the knowledge of God consists of the power of his resurrection and in his sufferings. And so he wants to live a life cruciform in the same shape, mode, pattern as his Savior. In fact, to be united to Christ in every way means that Christians must share both in the glory of the resurrection and in the suffering of Christ's death. This is what it means to be faithful. But on the basis of our union, we have knowledge, and our knowledge consists both of his resurrection and of his sufferings. But this goes further even still. Here in the third column, then we see exactly how all of this comes to bear on the ministry, the gospel ministry of Paul. And to do this, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So our ministry, like Paul's, flows from the gospel reality of Christ's death and resurrection. His union gives him knowledge, and his knowledge leads him to the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. And it is this knowledge which becomes and gives growth to this ever-deepening relationship with Christ. We know him, and we are found in him. We come to know Christ, and through our knowledge of Christ, we have a continual, progressive transformation or conforming into his image that becomes the bedrock of our effective witness to the culture around us. As much apologetics, friends, as you may learn, as much debating tactics as you may have, your greatest witness is your ability to live a gospel-centered life that reflects both the humiliation and sufferings of Christ and hope and the power of the resurrection of Christ. And so this leads us to 2 Corinthians 4. 
He says that he has this ministry, his mission, by the grace and the mercy of God. And therefore, he does not lose heart, he and the other apostles. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say here? He talks about the message. He talks about his mission that he will go because of God's work. Notice all the language here that talks about seeing and being known. The language of light, of manifestation. That this is made visible because of the work of Christ in Paul's life and own ministry. We see that the basis of Paul's ministry consists of two things. His proclamation of the gospel, even at the risk of his own death, and Paul's own sufferings for the sake of the gospel. You can see that it's now mirroring exactly Christ's own work. Christ suffered, died, and was risen again. Paul knows then that to, to be united to Christ, his own mission must be cruciform like Jesus. He must suffer. But also he knows the power of Christ's resurrection. And whatever it costs, he will obtain the resurrection from the dead. That, of course, comes later. But that's his goal. So for, for Paul, based on his union, he knows Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the share in his suffering leads him to work gospel mission, gospel living, on the basis of his own proclamation and his own suffering. That's what his ministry consists of. And that's what every Christian ministry consists of. It must flow from the gospel reality of Christ's death and resurrection, and therefore it will resemble the same reality of Christ's death and resurrection. Proclamation manifests the truth of Jesus' lordship. It visualizes and demonstrates the efficacy of his atonement. It puts on display the power of Christ's resurrection. Paul is preaching the gospel. He says it is the light that the dark and blinded world needs to see. The world is blinded by the enemy. The, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers and is keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory. But he says in verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Because God said, let light shine out of darkness. And so he has shown into our hearts this light of the union of Christ that we may on mission give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God to the face of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's whole ministry. This is his philosophy of ministry. This is what he does on the basis of the union of Christ. He goes, he proclaims the gospel that in his proclamation he may make manifest the truth of Jesus' lordship, the power of his atonement, 
that he would shine lightness to the dark and blinded world. All believers, not just apostles or pastors, they're all called to preach this same message. But Paul's proclamation is not, suffer, is not separated from his suffering. In fact, what we come to understand is that his proclamation is displayed on the stage of his suffering. They're, they're not two sides to different coins. They are the same face that the gospel is proclaimed in his suffering. It's not separated. Often it is supported by it. And it goes on in verse 7 that we have this treasure, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay. So that we're, we're fragile jars to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That word surpassing, it's the same there in Philippians 3.8, that he would know the surpassing worth of God. It is the surpassing power that belongs to God. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven or to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What a, a, a radical look at the Christian life. Is that how you view your Christian life? Carrying the death of Christ in your body? To die as Christ so that you may give life to Christ? Or do you see it as a come to church, read your Bible, do some good works, rinse, rather repeat? Oh, Paul says this is what it looks like to carry the death of Christ in your body. It's going to cause suffering. We are jars of clay, he says, and it will often be the case that the fragility of our earthly condition will prove to be the stage for God's omnipotent grace. What we know of the surpassing value of faith, we demonstrate in our flesh through our weakness, through our suffering. What we know as surpassingly great, exceedingly worthy, is proven in our lives through our flesh and through our weakness. So how we are called to do this is simply astonishing. He says we are to carry about in our bodies the death and the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. I'm not talking about the dumb manifestation the world talks about as visualizing and seeing and obtaining your future. We're talking about through the weakness of your flesh and through the suffering, the willingness and the readiness to suffer for the sake of Christ, you manifest, make visible, shine like light in darkness, the glory and the beauty and the surpassing worth of Jesus. It's not going to happen because you're impressive. It's going to happen because you're humble. It's not going to happen because you've really just are friendly, it's going to be happened because you said something to offend somebody, not because you were mean, but because the gospel came from your lips. We're called to do this by carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus. What does that mean? Two takeaways here. First, it means that you must be ready and willing to live under the cross. Be ready and willing to live under the cross. This is where the sufferings 
of our Savior are on full display. That's what it means to live a cruciform life. Be prepared to suffer. Be ready and willing to live under the cross. The church has prospered greatly anytime it was persecuted. The gates of hell, Jesus promised, would not prevail against the church. And yet, every time there's a little suffering, a little persecution, a little hardship, a little circumstance that is not in our favor, we do everything in our power to relieve ourselves from it. But friends, where else would we want to be than at the foot of the cross? We're not masochists. We don't seek harm or punishment. But we know there, with Christ, sharing in His sufferings is the safest and the most joyful place we can go. Friends, be ready and be willing to live under the cross. We live in a world where this is your evangelism strategy. Just be ready. There's lots of ways that we can go and reach and preach and minister to our culture. Day by day, this is going to be your number one evangelism strategy. To begin the day by being ready to suffer and live under the cross. If we have indeed been united to him, then we must share in his sufferings. For the glory he received only came after. He received the crown only after he endured the cross. What this ultimately means is that the Christian life, our gospel living, must be counterintuitive to the world. It must be counterintuitive. You will find yourself regularly going against the grain if you take the union of Christ seriously in gospel living in the world. This is paradoxes all over the New Testament. The way up is down. The path to greatness, joyful humility. The path to glory, patient suffering. Paul presses in on this over and over again. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians, he makes this point very clearly. I want you to turn there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about a thorn that was given to God in order to keep by God in order to keep him humble. And he asked that God would maybe remove this thorn. And three times he asked, but he says in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. If you are ready and prepared to live under the cross, it means you are ready and prepared to live in weakness so that the power of God would be on full display through it. I don't know of any other religion that tells you the way up is down, that promises that in your weakness, God will show his power. My power, he said, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What's the power of Christ? It's the Spirit at work which raised him from the dead and dwells within him. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Wait a minute. It was God's power made perfect in weakness. But now he is made strong in his weakness. On the basis of the union of Christ, what Jesus says, so is Paul. He knows that in his weakness is strong. Friends, why do we shy away from being weak Christians? Not intellectually weak. We have a strong and commendable and reasonable faith. Not weak on sin. We must kill sin and put it to death. But be willing to suffer. Be weak 
Because Christ displayed weakness, and in weakness, power is made clear. Lastly, we must not then lose heart. Because what God calls for us to do is not easy. To be weak, though we inherently are, is much harder on the face of it than to pretend like we're strong and to go about the day like that, isn't it? It takes a great amount of God-given humility and faith to go down when we want to go up. Paul says, we must not lose heart. In verse 1 he says, Therefore having this ministry of weakness, by the mercy of God we do not lose heart. And then he goes on to continue to say it. He says, do not lose heart. In verse 16, despite all that God is doing us, despite that we are jars of clay, always being struck down but not destroyed, always being driven to despair but never fully forsaken, we do not lose heart. For though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Suffering, going weak, will take everything in us as we rely upon God. But it will not ultimately consume us. We will be afflicted, but we will not crushed. We will face perplexing circumstances, but we will not be driven ultimately to despair. We will be persecuted, but not forsaken. We will be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. Yes, we will carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, but we will also manifest in that same body the life of Jesus, who was risen from the dead. Our union with Christ secures us for that weight of glory. The weight of glory that, like the surpassing greatness of God's strength and Christ's mercy, makes our afflictions seem trivial. Remember what Paul said? I'd trade everything just to know Christ. Even our afflictions are well worth the price of the value of the gospel to be known by God and to know Him more intimately. Therefore, friends, do not lose heart, for it is not a sacrifice to serve your God. It is a joy. Do not lose heart, because God renews us day by day by the power of the Spirit and is preparing for us this eternal weight of glory. Paul says that whatever he does, by any means, he would achieve and obtain the resurrection from the dead. It is not something he will earn in his obedience, but that he is being kept for him in his faithfulness. And it is for us. We can suffer in this life because we have for us an eternal weight of glory and an inheritance and a promise of the resurrection. So even if our outer body wastes away, even if we are pressed, persecuted, or crushed, we are not destroyed or forsaken. Christ suffers for sin, but he is risen from the dead. Therefore, we share in the sufferings of Christ that we may also partake in the vitality he offers in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is just a, uh, my attempt of a map of the Christian life, and I fall, for short, fall short of this all the time, and I know we all do, and so I would pray that you would help drive this deeply into our, our minds to be clear 
about where we need to go low because our pride wants to exalt us or where we need to suffer at the foot of the cross rather than feel the comfort far away from it. Help our discipleship and our gospel living be clearly rooted in our gospel union, to be thankful for that ministry of Christ who unites us by our faith to Him, not by anything we've done, but by the gift of Your grace and mercy. And for those who have not tasted the known and seen, God, would You convince them now of their need, their desperate need for Your work and Your grace through Christ, and uh, that they would and they would turn to you in repentance and see that you are more beautiful. The cross of Christ is more beautiful than anything this world would have to offer us and that we would gladly forsake all in this world in order to see a glimpse and to know and to be found in him. So as always, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.